We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, I'm Daniel, producer at Intelligence Squared. In this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast, we were joined by John Maida. John Maida is one of the world's leading experts on the crossover between technology, design, and business. And his new book is How to Speak Machine, Laws of Design for a Computational Age. So his book is all about how important it is that we educate ourselves about the new laws of the digital age and what the best tools are for businesses, citizens, and governments to educate themselves on this new world. He was interviewed by Roz Irwin of the Sunday Times. and We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. Hello, I'm Ros Irwin, a journalist for the Sunday Times, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. And I'm here today with John Maida, the designer, technologist and author of How to Speak Machine, Laws of Design for a Digital Age, and welcome. Thank you. I thought we should start with... Um, the element of language here, because a lot of us will find um, the digital language sometimes quite um, confusing and and, uh, sometimes uh, perhaps we find it very hard to understand. Why do you think it is so important that we learn this language? Well, first of all, it's not your fault if it feels a bit strange. Um, I want to point out that in 1999, David Bowie was asked about the internet and what it is and what it's going to be. And he correctly answered every way you can think about the internet from disintermediating the audience and the artists, all of that. But then he added that it's as like an alien life form has landed on Earth. So the internet is an alien life form and it's invisible and you can't see it. That's why it's confusing. And you also describe it as infinitely, this is computation, as infinitely large and infinitely detailed. And that is the other part of it that maybe lots of us struggle with, scale. Well, think about how when we say something is impossible, we say that's like finding a needle in a haystack, and that's impossible. But a computer can find easily a needle in a haystack. It can also find a needle in every haystack on Earth. 
Yeah, that's quite uh, that's quite an intimidating prospect, isn't it? But you start by pointing out in your book that human computers are the original computing machines. This has all come from us. How does that, you know, does that help us to relate and does that help us to understand what we have now created? Oh, that's a great question. Yes, um, the word computer is used for a person who can compute, meaning they can write on a piece of paper numbers and add them together. And that's how computers, human computers, worked. My point of like looking to history to point that out was that isn't it strange how today computers are inhumane, but we began as humans inside the computer, inside a computer. But that said, though, the computer we use today is so much more complex, so much more powerful. So I guess the analogy doesn't make you feel a little any better. It made me feel better when I wrote it, actually, <laughs> now that I think about it. Huh. But of course, the difference between the human computer is that we were fallible. We had to use the restroom sometimes. We had to take a break, maybe a smoking break at the time. That was like a long time ago. But it's like uh, there was an era where we would be the computers and we would get tired and we'd make errors. But today the computers don't make errors. They need no rest. And they work at a scale that is unimaginable. As you rightly say in the book, they don't get tired. And, you know, all of us, when we think of ourselves in any way as being like a machine, we are a machine that runs out of steam or that, you know, doesn't keep going. Is that, for you, is that one of the things that computers, as you say, they excel at repeating themselves in a loop and actually doing a lot of our boring work? Is that one of the blessings here? I think it's definitely a blessing when you consider that so many things are repetitive. Anyone who uses like a spreadsheet, do you want to type in all those numbers on a on a, on a, on a, on a, on a 10 key thing? I don't think so. But that said, um, the computer's doing a lot of things that we don't want it to do, I think. If we knew what it was doing, and if we knew that they were doing things on our behalf that we didn't want them to do, how do we stop them from doing that? And what types of things, when you say things that we don't want them to do, what are you specifically thinking of? Everything from, you know, you're pointing out your phone, like how much does your phone know about you and how much you're willing to tell the world about yourself through your phone. Even if, even if someone stole your phone, it wouldn't matter because it's all in the cloud. Who owns all that stuff in the cloud about you? Who's using it? That's a concern today, as you know. Yes, and it's what a lot of people are quite afraid of. And also the fact that we simply don't have full understanding of, of all of that. It feels exactly. like a sort of nebulous thing that we have just handed over all this information to. When you talk about people being computers, you talk about the history in this book of how it went from us being the computers to uh, sort of outsourcing that work, I guess. And Alan Turing obviously comes in here. I wanted you mm -hmm. to talk a bit about the history of how that happened. Oh, well, the history of how that happened is there's so many pieces of it, and I'm glad to touch upon in the book, from the fact that although all the photographs of people who made computers, there's photographs of many men toasting the fact that they made these computers, uh, software was invented by women. Women were the first software engineers. At the time, if you made the hardware, that's the cool stuff. If you wrote the programs, that wasn't really important. It was a belief, but as you know, that thing is flipped. The software matters much more than the hardware. And the fact that computers are made to serve the military, whereas today we use it to text our mom. Isn't it odd? You talk about the women being written out. In the book, you mentioned Dr. Grace Hopper and you mentioned Margaret Hamilton. Are there other women, and, and would you tell us a bit about them? And are there other women who've been written out of history here? Oh, my gosh. When you think about Margaret Hamilton, uh, an MIT engineer, and uh, my own realization that I didn't realize the computer science field was named after her. 
or someone like Grace Hopper, who really invented the term computer bug. I find that actually not just not just in uh, the computer science field. So many women are written out of have been written out of the history of it. So I'm glad that like even when I looked up the history of ENIAC, I had no idea that there were six women who were behind ENIAC, which is known as the most important computer of its time. And when was that computer created? In the uh, mid 1900s. And what was the importance of that computer? It became the model of computers in the future because at the time a computer was a hardware machine and there was no idea of software. And Turing's idea was revolutionary because he posited maybe there's a universal way to make a machine without actually building the machine. Maybe there's a way to make this thing called software. It wasn't called that. And with this software, this magical piece could make any machine into a machine written out of code. And that made it possible to make general purpose computers. And bring us up a bit closer to the modern day. You mentioned earlier about how we've switched from the hardware to the software. Mm-hmm. And we see that entirely with our phones now, don't we? I mean, that is how we experience our phone now. It isn't mm-hmm. so much about the device, it's all the apps on it and so on. Mm-hmm. How does that relate to the current day? It relates to it in a way that I'm still trying to figure out. It really serves industry really well. You know, planned obsolescence, the idea that, you know, you have that car, but aren't you kind of tired of that car? You want a new car, don't you? And so our whole consumerism has been born this idea that I will make you tired of that device you have. The challenge with, like, our smartphones today, if you if you notice it carefully, is that each time a new model comes out every year, like the cars used to be. But here's the catch. The software that runs on the compu- on these smartphones gets actually more bloated each with each cycle. So you may think you don't want to upgrade your phone, but actually the software has gotten so bloated, you have to upgrade your phone. So if one company owns both the software and the hardware, it can play a game where it can always make you upgrade. So you're forced into it because your phone becomes slow from the exactly. fact that, yeah. Gosh, okay. And we all know the problem of built-in obsolescence because we we experience it. I mean, you find that your phone becomes less good after a relatively short time. Right. And, and and if there was a quote unquote fair market where someone controlled the software, someone controlled the hardware, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to game the system. Hmm. But now it's kind of easy. Uh, I want to make you buy more hardware. I'm going to make the software much more bloated. Is there any call to reform that? Um, I, I think there is there's a lack of realization that this happens all the time. And that's why in the, the How to Speak Machine, I'm sort of going to put a spotlight on if you didn't know how software works. This is a way to start to sort of get a feel for that, understand the physics of it. What do you think people don't understand about about software in basic terms? Oh, well, um, you can't point at it. Like I can point at my phone. I can like click on an app, but I can't really like get inside that app and understand what's happening in it. But you're just going to like assume it's okay. And what are the dangers that come with that? Well, the dangers are like with any black box. If you don't know what's inside it, you're trusting it a lot. The only problem with computation, black boxes, is that it isn't what just sits inside your phone. It's attached to the cloud, which is sounds like a beautiful metaphor, but it's all the computers on Earth. So if it's attached, that little app on your phone is attached to this gigantic network of computers across the world, it isn't a black box. It's a black leviathan or some gigantic thing above us. The, the big change that you explore, well, one of the big changes, there's a lot of big changes in your book that have happened. Mm-hmm. But one of the big changes is that computers go from something 
that is, you know, very separate from the world and only a few people understand? Do they all come into our home? But the understanding doesn't necessarily come with that. Obviously, we all know people who are very gifted at this. But there's a whole bunch of us who use our technology daily who don't really have a clue how anything works very well. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the dangers that come with that? And and how do we go about starting to understand better mm. what's going on there? Mm. Well, you know, I think I think the danger isn't the danger of the computation itself or the computers itself. It's a danger of having someone else tell you, don't worry, I'm going to protect you from them, which is kind of happening in politics today. And it's dangerous when you rely on someone who doesn't actually understand it themselves. So number one. Number two... If this is a time, if David Bowie's prediction was correct and we were living with alien life forms, this computer thing, we can either choose to use it to our benefit or let it run on its own course. And the only way to like choose to use it to our benefit is to really understand it. You talk about early adopters of this new language. What what advantages do you think they have? I mean, how much of an advantage is it simply actually to, as you put it, speak machine? The advantages of speaking machine comes to being able to make companies like Google, Amazon, etc. These companies were made by people who are fluent in speaking machine, um, and they've had a first-mover advantage. Uh, older companies who are trying to be like Uber or be like Airbnb are having a hard time because they haven't the slightest idea what is that language they're speaking and they can either dismiss it as, oh, I hope they go away, or like, maybe we have to understand how what, what language they're speaking. That's where the How to Speak Machine came from. But of course, they have first mover advantage in that they're the ones who created this. Well, I love you pointing that out because they have first mover advantage and also first mover disadvantage. Because um, I think people aren't really happy with what they're doing right now. The Googles, Amazons, Facebooks, people feel a bit uncomfortable by that. So they may have made a few mistakes that are hard to undo. So people who come in later may be able to leapfrog the kind of ethical questions we need to ask around how tech works today. That's my hope. Well, we see that perhaps with Uber, Mm. that there would be potential there given all the problems that have beset that company. It would be a possibility for someone to come in and say, hey, we're the ethical version of this. We're the organic food version of this. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And not only organic food-like, the neat thing about computation is it scales infinitely. So organic food's having a hard time breaking in the market in different places because it's so scarce. If you make the right kind of organic food in computation, it scales the scale of all other companies. What you're talking about with big tech is that all of them now, in a relatively short time, have collected an extraordinary amount of basically baggage. Lots of pesticides. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And that could be their downfall, presumably. It it, it could be. And the good news is that so much work has been done in the field to create. I mean, it's so easy to, if you wanted to build an Uber or build a Lyft. Or, I mean, you see all these ride-sharing programs, all these apps out there. It's so easy to build one. The question is, who will build the organic food version of it? Who will build a good one? And if you're Facebook, of course, you're so big and powerful and wealthy that you can keep buying other things. So when someone else comes in and does something that threatens you, you can buy it, a la Instagram. I'm so glad you pointed out because, yes, you have, you've had first mover advantage and you can take out the competition very quickly. Um, and this is traditionally what business has always succeeded in doing in any case. That said, I think the people today who understand computation can actually work around the system 
if they can make the right choices, it's not impossible to disrupt the disruptors. Do you think that those companies that have been able to do what we talked about with Facebook there, for example, um, are they are they in your mind too powerful? Oh, uh, when you when you look at what computation is, you realize that any company touching it and mastering it is more powerful than we can imagine. So I wouldn't put just Facebook in there. I'd put every company with a .com or whatever in that, in that category. And it really is kind of up to the older established companies to tech up, to kind of figure out like how do we not just catch up, how do we leapfrog and do the right things by the brands that we have stood for for decades, in some cases centuries. I'm hopeful for that battle to happen. One of the big fears that you explore later in the book is is something that you know is talked about a lot now and 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 actually to be fair is an idea that comes up a lot in books as well the idea of computers replacing us and you are you say as long as we're audacious we shouldn't worry too much well we shouldn't be too fearful of it what what do you think in terms of the likelihood of us creating our own sort of demise in effect oh well it's you know just recently i was reading how there's a 1961 headline newspaper saying we will be re- we will all be replaced in ten years from now, which I thought was nice and endearing. By robots, that, then, or by by the idea of mechanization or how industry is advancing, not particularly robots. Um, this time is different, though, because the way that uh, the modern AI systems can be developed, um, and because of the way that exponential speed progresses, not just linear things, exponential speed progresses, um, it's not unlikely that. Machines can write just as well as us. They could produce a podcast without us, perhaps. The question, though, is um, how will quality, how will a new bar of quality be sustained? That's where I think the human advantage always exists because AI systems, as I lay out in the book, are all built up on past data. They're terrible at the future because they can't create the future. And I think human beings have the ability to be hopeful, to be curious, Think of Fleabag or these other, all these new entertainment mechanisms. A computer couldn't make that up. We humans have the advantage in that space. And if you theoretically programmed Fleabag in, so you put in every episode, the script, and every other data point that you needed. Yes. Would what it created, do you think, possibly be funny? Oh, it could create things that, are, that, that rhyme with the same funniness. Yeah, so but which is, you could you could argue is what what Hollywood whatever industry does. I mean, I can't imagine how many flea bags are in production right now, you know, made by human beings. But the feeling would be that each one sort of is lesser, right? Like we exactly. we see that perfect, right? So what we exactly. see is that you sort of rip it off and you've lost something in the process. Exactly, and and I think that human romance, that thing you described just now, is going to be the catapult for this question of quality. And so I'm really curious about the quality we can still create, but we can't really stay ahead of this technology if we don't understand its weaknesses. My theory about the advantage of humanity is that we are endlessly creative. Mm-hmm. So I, I was thinking about the automi- you know, automation of jobs, and I think, but we're terribly good at creating new jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of hear increasingly ridiculous titles that people have sort of chief ideas officer, that type of thing. And you think... Humanity is very good at creating work for itself to do, even if we take away the more manual work. Is there any mm-hmm. element of, of that? How much should we fear automation? Because as you, meant, you mentioned a little bit earlier, 
we we see those headlines. The, the headline for ninety six one. I, I just saw one of those today. Yeah. You know, the fear of automation, mid mid tier jobs is what mm-hmm. it, it was talking about. How right are we to fear that? Well, I, I I love how you also believe that we humans we are endlessly original in our desire to be original, and every headline for the next ten twenty years is going to threaten our jobs will go away. That said, the fear part doesn't actually let you think well. So that's why I think that understanding computation is a helpful skill to have because it's invisible. It's not easy to understand. It's alien. So I'm going to go back to my TV program and watch that instead is a common reaction in fear. I prefer if we look at it and say, oh, that's what it can do now. Well, that's what it'll do in the future. Oh, so let's uh, carve out what we need to do right now. And also, let's correct what it's doing right now, too. One element of creativity that, that runs through the book is about design, which is obviously a great interest of in your work. Right at the beginning of the book, I think you quote an old blog post where you say that computer and design tend to mix poorly together, like oil and water. And why is that and has that changed? I mean, you wrote that, obviously, some years ago. I think that design in the classical sense is about something very physical, like the wood of this table or the cast iron piece on this microphone. It's a visceral thing in our physical world, whereas the computer's world is invisible. It's cyber. It's computational. And so when you put together the sensibility of someone who can craft something out of wood, and you put them into this sort of alien-like universe, it is like oil and water. That said, there are people now today who can cross that bridge, who don't have that problem. They're the people who I think are the most valuable today. People who are, are they designers? Are they computer people? What are they? They're hybrids. One might think that what what has changed is we've had companies successfully do that. I mean, Apple would be the primary one that would spring into your mind. They've got a lot of them there, these people. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're highly valued, yeah. one assumes. Yeah. So has have they – they've sort of acknowledged this problem. Do you think they have solved this problem? No, it's so hard to solve because if you if you square it in pure business terms, you only want to grow. And computation is amazing at growing because it is alien-like. It can grow infinitely large. It can run at infinite speeds. It never gets tired. So to exploit that is the property of most computer tech businesses. That's why I think that people who can ask questions, who can bring a liberal arts take on how how computation can be best used, how tech companies might exist in the future, versus banning them all. The worst thing to do with this is to say like, oh my gosh, this is like so terrible. Let's ban all this new technology. Um, that's a recipe for disaster too. Do we have any examples where that's happened before, where the assumption has been, let's ban it? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think we've ever we, – we, we've, we've had terrible mistakes made. We've had the invention of uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear you know, things, nuclear bombs, nuclear radiation, but also – because it has helped us to stem the, the growth of cancer, but also create damage. And so when you make technology, it always comes with unintended consequences. And that's what companies like Facebook are now owning up to. That, oh, wait, we made something amazing and terrible at the same time. What do we do? But they had a sort of a, an element of superiority that has been very much chipped away at, didn't they? Because they felt like they were the new, fresh companies run by young people yeah. doing exciting things. And then they've now 
but essentially wreaked quite a lot of havoc on the world. Well, the one thing that I do admire about Facebook is when you go to Facebook campus, and maybe that was the old beginning of Facebook, but there's a, there's a sign that says has a thumbs up Facebook sign, right? If you walk up to the sign, get out of your car, get up to the sign, look at the back of the sign, the sign is the same sign for Sun Microsystems, which is the campus that Facebook bought. Sun Microsystems <laughs> went bankrupt. So I think there's a modicum of humility somewhere in that company, I hope, to be able to have a sign like that. Well, that they recognize that this is a privileged position that they may not occupy forever. I think they have to get out of their cars and look at the back of the sign to remember. And now it's time for a quick break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We haven't talked much about AI in this. And you have a lovely line that we should expect AI to be as stupid as we are. Exactly. What do you mean by that? Well, you see the phrase AI slash ML. You'll see experts say, well, AI ML, AI ML. And like, what does that mean? What it means is that it's a different kind of AI that is powered by data. So think about like everything you've done in the past as data. You pour it into AI ML. And now it's going to mimic everything in the future based upon your past history. Now, some of us have done some dumb things in the past, and we want to forget them. 
But the way AIML is like, oh my gosh, all these are valid things that happened in the past. Let's repeat them. What happens is then if you do court sentencing algorithms that bias towards people who are underprivileged may get sentenced in prison easier because their zip code is in a poor neighborhood, the AI will reason in the future, oh, where do you live? Oh, you come from a poor neighborhood. Guess I'll have to sentence you. Not a good thing, but it's being powered by past data to fuel the future. We automate badness if we don't look out. So data effectively can be very unfair. Big data can be very unjust. Absolutely. And that's why having thick data, not just big data, thick data, it's a term coined by Tricia Wang. The idea that you might have all these numbers that prove everything, but talk to a person once in a while and see what's really up. How do we make sure that this brilliant technology that has lots of great effects doesn't end up being used in that way, which is discriminatory, effectively? It requires more people getting involved with making the technology, building the businesses, growing the organic vegetables. Instead of, this technology is so bad, let's like take down Zuckerberg, let's take down all the companies. That's not going to go anywhere because the machines that we're running today we as humans are such a small piece of that now. So how can we as humans now join up and ask questions about how to change technology is super important right now. But we can't do it if we don't understand it. And one of the worries, obviously, would be that AI or algorithms or any of that stuff reflects the biases that already exist within all of us, right? So it's a product of our unfair society. Yes, and only we humans will tend to point it out. Like One example I love, not I love, but I find it so powerful, is that uh, Princeton University uh, pointed out that Google Translate, when you translate in ungendered language in Turkish, uh, he is a doctor, he is a nurse, uh, it translates as he is a doctor, she is a nurse. So what you think is this sort of super AI translator robot so fair, it contains biases. But only a human will say, hey, wait a second, I think we've got to change that. And when we humans speak up, the companies listen. We also know that more broadly, Silicon Valley and, and the tech industry has a diversity issue. Yes. It is too you know, ex- exclusive, not inclusive. Do you think that has shaped some of this? Because there aren't enough people in the room for whom these are issues that they think about enough, perhaps. I think it's shaped the technology industry in a way that the technology industry is working to change. But already so much damage has been done, so much bias has been built in, that that's where I, I, I grow more excitement from the newer companies or the older established companies asking questions how to tech up. Because some of the ways these companies have been built contain so much bias that it's hard to root that out. That said, I noticed that the financial industry hasn't been done so well <laughs> done on the gender questions in so many industries. So I'm glad that the tech industry messed up so much that we all begin to talk about every industry too. And what is the benefit in your mind? Of, of I mean, diversity you know, is a good thing in itself, mm-hmm. but what is the benefit that would oh. happen in te- for technology? Oh, we, just, we, we would make better products today. We'd make better products because we'd be including more people's uh, sensibilities. For instance, you know, one of the great sins of Facebook that people aren't aware of, I think, is a simple idea that, okay, I'm going to make my profile. My profile contains my name, and it contains a photo of myself. Now, how much judgment occurs in that photo of yourself? 
and how much knowledge is contained in your name. It contains, it tends to contain gendered information. So when we look at Twitter, social media online, and people ask, why are there so few women thought leaders on these, the, on these platforms? It's because they have photographs and names. And it turns out, as someone told me, try putting your photo as a woman and your name as a woman and see what happens to you, John. And I said, oh, I tried it out. Within like, <laughs> like a day, I'm being hit on. And it's super uncomfortable. And I'm like, wait a second, is this what happens? So it's an example of how all the way back to Facebook, which is essentially a dating app for its time, has colored the interactions today. That's why I'm not a believer in systems with avatars or names, actually, because they color the relationship online. Well, as a woman, I can tell you that because I have opened uh, direct messages on Twitter because I'm a journalist and, you know, sometimes you get something useful. But 98% of what I get is messages from men. <laughs> and it's a bit like being in a nightclub when mm. people are making very bad approaches to you, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm too old to go to nightclubs now. So I don't, I, you know, this is how I now experience that. And it is very odd. And I think, I think it's a fantastic experiment. I would advise all men to do that. And, and, I, and, I, and part of the research shows that the best avatar to have is, is an ungendered cat. <laughs> with an ungendered name, and you're left alone. So you think <laughs> that we should all ditch our avatars <laughs> and probably give ourselves a gender-neutral name, see I what think, happens? I think that would really change the tenor uh, of a lot of things. Not saying it's only gender lines, but also people, people's skin color, religious, mm. you know. And so it's just the fact that once you have bias in that relationship of strangerness, it, it just colors the whole conversation and colors everything. One of the helpful things that comes from all this, though, is that we can see our own biases in a way perhaps we couldn't before. So you can analyze them. Yes. So you can say, well, what percentage of the people <clears throat> I follow on Twitter, for example, are mm -hmm. male and which are female and get some program to do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, if, for example, you were reading books only by male authors and, or, but, you know, there would be no way to really, well, you could obviously count it, but... You wouldn't necessarily think about it. And I do think one of the helpful things that's happened right. is perhaps we have these conversations more. Well, I mean, you know, once I became very aware of it, I improved my life because, look, every, every business book that's known, they tend to be written by a man. And so I actively buy business books by women. And I found that my ability in business has improved. So I, when people ask me, like, is diversity a good thing? It's just a smarter way to live life. Because if you ignored a large part of the population and their abilities and their intellect, I think you're actually running on half cylinders. So that's what I found myself. And do, how much do you think the tech industry is improving in that regard? Because they're certainly aware of the problem. Oh, I think they're aware. I think they're trying to improve. I think actually every industry is trying to improve, but not much work is, uh, is, is getting done, I think. I personally find that if we all do something every day, not just for the right reason. It's just smarter to do this. Mm. And do you think going forward, mm -hmm. I mean, w the other bit that women aren't, they're not there as the startup founders, right? We've got yeah. lots of high profile role models who are female. They, obviously, the stereotypical creator is a white man, mm. and the startup founder. Now, Will that element improve? Because my my concern is that tech companies hire women in relatively high-profile roles. Uh, that's great. But what isn't happening is 
is girls aren't thinking that's the career they want to go in where they create something, where they mm -hmm. do coding, all that stuff. And mm -hmm. that isn't quite happening, even though there are great initiatives to try to get girls coding and so well, on. Well, when I, when, I'm, when, when, I, when I see what's out there, I get depressed. I have all daughters, so I've always thought this for a long time and realized, wow, this is a super unfair world. I, being a man, I became a feminist in the process of realizing, wow, this world's messed up. But everyone hasn't lived that experience yet. And so what I believe the opportunity is, and when I talk about diversity and inclusion, I talk purely about the business outcomes and like how we improve business outcomes when we understand more of the world's consumers. Think of every retail expert. If the majority of things are bought by women versus men, we should have more women involved in executive roles there. So it, we have to use logic, folks, is the argument I offer. Um, and I find more businesses leaning in for the right reason of this is the rational thing to do. And luckily, it's also solving some social justice issues that have long prolonged the earth. We also know, though, that you do need to start young with these issues. So we need to start in schools, right? Well, what I love about the, the, the research I did on the computer science exam in the U.S. So there's a computer science exam. It's called the Advanced Placement Computer Science Exam. And it historically had more men than women take this in high school. But recently, the numbers have been shifting. And it's because one change came into existence. The change became, instead of asking, write a program to do this, the exam asked, this is a problem that is affecting the world. How would you solve it with a program? And that alone has changed the balance. So what does it say? It may say, uh, it may say that men like to not think too hard about what they're doing. I don't know. I'm, I, I, I as well will may, maybe say that. But um, a, a broader perspective will bring in a broader funnel of people into an activity that's affecting everyone. And once people have that, hopefully, a greater comfort with the language as, as you talk about in that, what does that give them as an advantage going forward? So if I learn to speak machine much mm. more than I do now, mm. what would that give me in my life? It would give you the ability to talk to venture capital uh, investors in a way where they would nod because they may have come from the background because of their own biases. It would give you access to understanding how powerful the cloud really is. It isn't just a storage device. It's a thinking machine. And if you had that in the company you're building, what kind of company could you build? Who would you hire? It might change that. What do you expect to change in the next couple of years? Because your book is turning. I mean, I'm asking you to look in a crystal ball here. But your <laughs> book is talking about radical change over a relatively short period. Yes. What are your expectations going forward? <sighs> well... You know, the problem with writing this book is uh, it summarizes a lot of my life and understanding of computation. And I think at some point I became alarmed myself because I, I didn't think about how powerful it really is. Other thing I came into contact was is the notion that exponential time is much, much faster than linear time. That 10 years for a computer isn't 10 years for a human it's maybe 10,000 years for a human. And so when I think two years ahead, what I hope for, I, I can't predict how things will be. But I think that if more people spoke machine who don't come from the tech sector, no matter what age they are or background they are, they might be able to ask the kind of questions that can either change the future of technology, but also benefit them in how they're building their businesses uh, for the future. Are you hopeful that we will be able to manage some of the problems we've discussed? Because what strikes me 
is that we feel that we are we don't have the power as individuals to control these things that we're perfectly happy to use the technology and we enjoy using it yeah. but then when we think about the parts of it that make us unhappy, we, you know, sort of Im- invasions into our privacy, who's holding data on us, right. that we've sort of become a raw material for companies mm-hmm. because they're taking information on us mm-hmm. and processing that. A lot of those things, people start to feel quite powerless. Mm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that because when I see the politicians on TV batter a technology executive, I'm, I'm really grateful that they're doing that, but knowing that they don't really know what they know what the tech executives know. And there's millions of them behind <laughs> Zuckerberg too. You topple one, there's more behind that. So it makes great theater. But at the end of the day, if you can't construct the future, what will happen is it will never get made. So I guess I'm hopeful talking to so many folks after this book's come out, like, like maybe your way of thinking of technology has changed. Maybe you'll change how you use technology. Maybe how this podcast is distributed will be different because now you know more about how the network really works. That's power. And I like the idea of power being given to those who didn't have it before. Talk about power. And one of the things that struck me in our conversation talking about tech bosses is, of course, there was speculation that a couple of them, notably Mark Zuckerberg, might run for office. I remember that, yeah. And, of course, this has now been backed away from quite dramatically. But it's not impossible that we get that at some point. But, of course, Mm. you've got someone with a huge amount of influence already and actually a huge amount of power already. Mm. To take another form of power, which we, you know, has not... It seems that they want to occupy a number of spheres of power. Mm. Uh, Is that something that we should be nervous Um. of? After watching all these these uh, big uh, like uh, political things, I think they're probably afraid <laughs> to go into office. Maybe yes, good. I really enjoyed uh, Andrew Yang. He's a political candidate. He has a he, his supporters wear a hat M A T H. It stands for Make America Think Harder, and I, I love that he's trying to, as someone who understands speaking machine, get involved. But no one can hear him right now. But those who, those of us who can hear him realize, wow, if you were a politician and you really understand what's wrong with not Zuckerberg but his entire company and industry, wouldn't that be cool but super unlikely right now? But make America think harder is actually rather what, what maybe needs to happen globally in a number of issues. <laughs> not a bad it? thing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you. Thank you.